2: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina.
1: And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am falling asleep at the moment. You month. are. You look terrible. It's four thirty in the afternoon and you're 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 basically it's not even like you're just tired. You look kinda of like you're floating. I'm uh, I feel like you know that scene
2: in the big Lebowski where he's uh, yeah, listening yeah. to music the man in me. Yeah, yeah, the Bob yeah. Dylan scene. Yeah, That's yeah. how I kind of feel, but I'm not I'm not smoking pot. I'm uh, drinking fake beers. I'm drinking fake beers. I've got a 0. 0.5 alcohol beer in my hand. Well, you deserve and, it because uh, you did the gross grind. That's, I did. Don't
1: bury the lead. You did the gross grind for the first time. Yeah, the
2: lead is the gross grind. Uh, I am the victim um, <laughs> of the lead. And man, that is that is an insane, like, I've been hearing about the gross grind now for better part of 15 years. Yeah. And every single time I hear it, I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I've hiked before too. like congrats yeah. on your success yeah. for doing I it. I did the Capilano. Uh, yeah. suspension yeah, we get once. it. I walked up a hill one time <laughs> in East Vancouver too. Um, but man, is that that thing's no joke? And I, I actually was uh, I was going up the first part, yeah, I you know it's like a lot of steps, a yeah. lot of big steps, yeah. a lot of like lunges almost, you know yeah. you're, you're climbing, you're on the stairmaster. They call it the nature's the nature's. nature's stairmaster. Yeah, okay. right. That's right. what they call it. So, anyways, I'm going. I'm sweating. I'm like, you know, nauseous almost. I've like my shirts drenched. Yeah, and then I look up, and uh, uh, this way to the girls' grind. No, it wasn't quite the. It wasn't. It you were wasn't still quite in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and I look up, and it says quarter point. Like I uh, was like one. There's nothing more uh, like in terms of just shattering one's yeah. confidence. Uh, no, you just hey, realize that's that a, that's there's a, a huge, a huge component
1: of it's mental. Yeah, exactly.
2: Anyways, I got through it, but now, now I'm just drained. That's yeah. a different. I, I'm just well, uh, actually, and we were at the office earlier, and you went with a couple guys from the office, and everybody was acting a little weird. Well, yeah, we got up at five a.m., went and did the gross grind before our. But it wasn't like people were meeting. tired.
1: It was like. Everyone was kind of floating around in this weird. It was smoky. Yeah. It
2: was uh, because yeah, of the, yeah, the you know, smoke. Yeah, a yeah. lot of smoke. It's just now. I just feel like I need to. I need to be put down. Yeah. Well, like quite like like more like a horse, not like a baby. Like <laughs> go to the glue factory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need to go to the glue factory today. Uh,
1: anyways, who do we got on the program? So we got Jens von Bergman. Uh, data scientist, and we got Nathan Louster, UBC sociology professor. Both guys have been on the show before. Both are fantastic guests. Both are very active in the housing debate, especially on Twitter. That's where the housing debate generally takes place when it's not on this podcast that we host. But but why did we want to have them on today? Because you did the interview. I wasn't able to be there. Yeah, I went out to UBC. So the reason we wanted to have them on is... Terry Glavin, well-respected journalist, Terry Glavin, wrote an opinion piece in McLean's entitled, Dirty Money is Destroying Vancouver's Civic Fabric and Causing Lasting Damage. Okay. In his piece, he makes, it's very loaded, it's very emotional. You can tell Terry's got a... He's a, got a bone to pick. He's got a dog in the fight. Uh, he's he's very upset about the state of Vancouver right now and, you know, the money laundering, this, 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 and, you know, we'll link to it on uh, in the show notes. But what happened is, there's a number of inaccuracies. Okay. In well, this is debatable, I guess, but I, I don't think so. A number of inaccuracies in this piece. Jens and Nathan got together and co-wrote a blog that basically took apart this piece. A blog said, post. And said, "Here's where Terry Glavin gets it wrong," and we'll link to this piece as well. Uh, basically, ten factual inaccuracies in Terry Glavin's piece, and some of them are are huge. Like he's, they're like, you know, here's his stat. This comes from nowhere. It's made up type thing. Like this okay. comes from this, and it's wrong, and here's why. Right. So they take it apart. But what really struck me was uh, I was watching. They posted it on Twitter. This was a couple weeks back, and uh, you know, of course, a bunch of people attack them uh, because you know Terry Glavin's a well-respected guy. Blah blah blah. But finally, and I think this shows you where the uh, where the discourse has gone around housing in Vancouver. Terry Glavin himself comes on at Jens von Bergman on Twitter and he's like, I've been watching this whole thing from afar. I didn't think it was worth commenting, but I've decided I'll tell you one thing. You're a wanker and a shill, is what he said. Oh, Terry. Terry Glavin. So anyway, then they had a bit of a back and forth. Terry too far. It's <laughs> Terry Glavin's saying like Jens is an attention seeker and I mean, just ridiculous stuff. I mean, Jens is the nicest guy. He's so data driven. It's yeah. like, I've, you don't also, meet many yeah, people as, yeah. as specific and grounded in the numbers as Jens von Bergman. So it's kind of insane. So I wanted to have them on to talk about it.
2: So that's what we're going to hear about today.
1: Exactly. Yeah. My talk with Nathan and Jens about Fantastic. the state of the discourse and about the inaccuracies. We basically walk through them. So it's really good. But before we get to our discussion with Jens and Nathan, we know we have a lot of realtors who listen to the show, and you guys need to know about drivethehive.ca. The thing is about drivethehive.ca is that you can
2: basically have all the services, all the back end services of a full-time administrator, but you do it with no overhead. So you can actually free up a bunch of time to do more business in the most cost-effective way. So you don't actually have to have the risk of carrying an admin person.
1: That's right. And you also don't have to train them because drivethehive.ca, and I can say this from experience, are some of the best trained admin people out there. Absolutely. So go check out drivethehive.ca and let them know we sent you. Absolutely. So let's cut to our discussion with Jens and Nathan. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Jens von Bergman from Mountain Math Software Analytics and Nathan Lauser, Associate Professor uh, in the Sociology Department at UBC, out here at UBC. How you doing, guys?
3: Doing great. Thanks. Good. Thanks.
1: You know, we always start the same, can, and you both have been uh, past guests on the show. Can you, can you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourselves?
3: Well, um, I moved to Vancouver um, seven years ago, um, started my own company here, um, doing, um, focusing on data, data analysis, and visualization. And um, I dabble in um, housing-related issues um, at times, and uh, also comment on these on my blog. And,
4: uh, and I've been here, boy, now uh, 13 years, I guess. So, uh, uh, But as a, you know, as a professor up here at UBC in the sociology department. Prior to this, I was in the uh, family studies and social work department, so I've moved around within the university a bit. But I've uh, basically started as a demographer, so studying population and studying family formation. And then I got interested in how housing influenced that. And uh, then I discovered that housing was a fascinating topic in its own right. And ever since then, that's really been my focus. Um, so I've been, um, yeah, I, I wrote a book about housing here in Vancouver. And then uh, um, I've come across Yens's wonderful maps and, and analysis online. So it's been great to uh, start working more with Jens.
1: Right, for sure. And your book, uh, just for our listeners, you've been on the show talking about it before, The Death and Life. The of death the and life of the,
4: of the single family house. Okay, yeah, the death and life right. of the single family house uh, focused here on Vancouver.
1: Um, yeah. Okay, so why we really want to have you guys on today is is kind of a, a general conversation about the discourse around housing right now, especially with the election coming up in the fall. But there was... in. A blog post, I guess, or article that you both co-wrote that, that uh, was really interesting and kind of the impetus for us to get back in touch. It was called Fact-Checking Vancouver's Swamp Drainers, which uh, we'll post on our site as well, as long as that's all right with you guys. Um, so maybe we'll start just uh, with a general question. How would you both characterize the discourse around housing right now?
4: Oh, um, so (laughs) I guess that'll be me first. Um, So in terms of the discourse around housing, I mean, you know, it depends, right? So here in Vancouver, to make it more specific, the discourse around housing, I I think, has uh, really heated up in the last, um, you know, yeah, 15 years or so since I've been here, effectively. Um, I think that... uh, Prior to that time, I think housing has always been really difficult for um, a lot of uh, lower-income folks to to figure out here in Vancouver. Um, Increasingly, it's becoming more and more of a challenge for middle-class people to figure out, uh, especially insofar as a lot of people have the ideal of things like a single-family detached house is what they want, and that's just not even close to possible on a middle-class income uh, here in Vancouver. Um, so I think that uh, as that's ramped up, especially as the middle class has gotten drawn into these housing uh, discussions, it, and you have a lot of people with these kind of frustrated ambitions, I think that that's also ramped up the um, the broader um, emotional level of the housing discourse. But I think there's also other elements, right? So, I mean, I think there are um, broader connections with other... Um, uh, discourses in terms of uh, what's going on in the United States, in terms of a much broader populist backlash against governments that also have become connected to uh, housing discourse. Um, and I think you also have people who are, to be honest, somewhat disingenuous in their motivations contributing to things like the housing discourse. Um, and uh, so I think there's a variety of things that have turned it into a much more toxic environment in Vancouver than it has been up to this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it strikes me just in, in listening to your responses, like the, the history of Vancouver and the kind of xenophobic history of Vancouver. It seems like technology is playing a huge role. Role as well, I mean, I actually follow you guys both on Twitter, and the level of it seems like that's kind of ground zero in terms of of toxic discourse in my mind. Uh,
3: but Jens, did you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I I'm fairly new to Twitter too. I just started using Twitter simply um, a as a way to disseminate um, some of the data and the visualizations I do. But also, um, I discovered it's a it's a great tool to learn um, and see what else is going on. So um, that has generally been my focus, and I've been kind of just ignoring. Uh, most of the other parts um, right. I've been fairly liberal on the mute thread kind of function that is a lifesaver um, just to um, do that so and I don't really get that bothered by the toxicity that sometimes comes up, it's concerning but um, uh, one thing to that's on my mind a lot when I talk about housing um, discussions is data Um, I find generally the um, data and the level of data analysis that we have in the housing debate is still quite immature and uh, um, could really benefit from something like the Housing Research Collaborative that's coming up, just to take a deeper dive. A lot of it is just um, people really looking at this on the side, not really as their main job. I mean, Andy Yan has been at this for a while. Um, I've been jumping into that space a bit. Nathan has been there and is doing great stuff. And so um, uh, Tom Davidoff has, has um, had great contributions, But um, really for everybody it's kind of like a side thing it's not mm-hmm. something that they focus on and it prevents it from really going deep
1: um so along those lanes of not kind of a, a taking a deep dive on on the analytical or the data analysis uh fact-checking vancouver's swamp drainers targeted uh and it sounds like targeted an article in mclean's almost because it was a Uh, an article that had a lot of factual inaccuracies in it. (laughs) Um, And you guys kind of take, it was Terry Glavin who wrote it. It was called Dirty Money in McLean's uh, magazine. You take him to task. One of his main claims is that Vancouver is a case study in the dark, broken and ugly side of globalization. Um, And he's referring to housing, money laundering, uh, the opioid crisis as well. But I think housing is kind of the main, or at least in my mind, the main thrust there. Do you guys agree with Terry Glavin on that kind of fundamental point?
4: (laughs) no. (laughs) <laughs> you may want us to expand on that answer. Please do. But uh, uh, you know, I mean, I think that uh, a, I don't think we were actually directly targeting Terry Glavin, and we actually right. tried to look at see if can we pull in other, uh, uh, you know, n- other possible uh, articles here to refer to, and there were some. But I have to say, you know, Terry Glavin did a really good job of pooling all of these other <laughs> these different strands of discourse and and problematic claims together in this article. So we ended up saying, okay, let's just fact check this. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that starts to get us into then also from my perspective and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how does this connect to broader strains in the discourse and especially this anti-globalization rhetoric, you know, which was part of the article. And that's uh, uh, where I felt, and that was my fault, <laughs> that uh, that drawing attention to some of the parallels in the discourse between um, what we're seeing here in the Vancouver discussion and what we're seeing down south of the border. And I mean, I'm an I'm 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 an immigrant from from the U.S., so certainly I pay attention to politics in both of these contexts, and it really disturbs me in terms of uh, the kinds of things that we're seeing down south of the border, and. Um, so, you know, that rhetoric uh, was really a problem for me in terms of Vancouver as this dark sort of side of globalization and throw every problem you can think of into this mix without sorting them out and paying close and careful attention to each one instead saying, this is all a swamp, we need to drain it. That's that's where we sort of came at this from. Is, no, that's not helpful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um what What do you think the dangers are in in misdiagnosing uh, the causes of the housing crisis? Well, I mean, one of the big
4: dangers, again, for me is this kind of anti-foreigner rhetoric, right? So anti-foreign, anti-globalization. And uh, ultimately, again, we can see where that's gone with Brexit. We can see where that's gone in the United States with Trump's election. Um, We can see where it's gone with the rise and the return of a sort of neo-Nazi movement more broadly, right? Which is really problematic. Um, And uh, that's something I'm very much working in whatever way i can to try and stop <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, also so in addition to that broader issue of we are in this kind of resurgent fascist moment and that's something we should be working to stop however we can um i think it also just misdiagnoses the problems and if you misdiagnose the problems in terms of uh, uh vancouver's housing market you're not going to make things better um so that's the other side of it Especially as I mentioned, right? I think we have seen this ratcheting up of particularly middle class concerns that you can't afford to buy your single family detached house anymore as the preeminent crisis in Vancouver. And that's not the preeminent crisis in Vancouver. Right. Right? It's always homelessness is your number one, that's where people are dying. And then you've got lots of people in marginal positions in terms of a rental market that's not actually meeting fundamental housing needs. And then somewhere down the list of needs is, yeah, it'd be great if people felt like they could live uh, uh, up to their fullest aspirations in terms of uh, what kind of housing they want. But when you focus on this middle class crisis of, of uh, being able to buy the home you want as the preeminent crisis, everything else tends to fall by the wayside. So I think that's another thing that I try whenever I can to put back on the agenda is no, we need to pay attention to homelessness, we need to pay attention to the rental crisis, um, make sure those don't fall off our uh, radar, so to speak, about what are the problems we really need to tackle in this city.
1: So, along those lines, and and hopefully we'll get back to the Terry Glover article because I'd love to go through the the inaccuracies there. But just thinking here, I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that both of you are advocates for increasing supply quite considerably here in Vancouver. Um, do you think the NDP's housing? Policies put forth earlier this year that focus almost exclusively on demand. Do you think those are good policies uh, or are they a symptom of misdiagnosing the problem?
3: Well, I would say that um, in conjunction with um, ramping up supply, especially rental supply, that was also part of the NDP platform and that takes more time to implement and to come through. Um, some of these policies we've seen are going in the right direction. So I think this extra school tax, which, you know, depends on your point of view, but it's either it's a form of progressive property tax, um, you know, might be if you bought recently, it's kind of a form of progressive income tax. Um, but whichever way it is, I think it's going in the right direction. It's uh, focusing, again, on using property more effectively, um, which, which I think is good. So um, those measures I find helpful. Um, I'm still curious to see the details on the speculation tax. It's kind of hard for me at this point to figure out how it's supposed to meet the objectives that right. um, was stated. I, I don't quite understand how that's supposed to work, but I'm quite curious. Um, I think um, if it could be tuned a bit more toward the uh, housing affordability, uh, BC Housing Affordability Fund that was uh, proposed by Davidoff and others... Um, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Generally shifting um, taxation more toward property, I think, is going to be useful in our context where we talk a lot about um, ineffective or inefficient use of property. And um, so I think that would be very helpful. Um, So I think these kind of measures are useful in conjunction with the other ones that are ramping up right now.
4: Yeah, and and just to follow up, I... I think Jens and I are pretty much on the same page with a lot of uh, uh, broader policies. Uh, but I do think that it's it's not entirely fair to characterize the NDP's platform as just demand. Certainly the demand stuff rolled out uh, quickly in terms of, I think, a lot of the taxation policies. Right. Although we are still waiting on the details of the speculation tax. Um, but uh, I think that they also have been really ramping up their commitment to nonprofit housing. Um, and, uh, you know, I... Ideally, some of the other tools that they're trying to put on the table, like rental-only zoning, may also be beneficial in the long run. Um, There are other things they still could do to really encourage more rental housing production. Um, uh, But nevertheless, I think they are working with both uh, supply and demand sides of the equation, per se. Um, So, yeah.
3: And we shouldn't forget the um, funding that came through immediately for temporary modular housing, which has already had a measurable impact, I think, Mm -hmm. in terms of just the number of people that are housed now. Right. right.
1: Yeah, it's just funny because we talked to, um, you know, on the podcast, we talked to all all sorts of people. We talked to a lot of developers as well uh, who are building, you know, largely uh, market-based housing, condos. Some on the apartment side and some, all these projects have some component of, you know, the community amenity contribution or the social housing aspect. But what we've been hearing lately, which is kind of just interesting, is, you know, with pre-sale sales going down, it's leading to kind of everybody hitting pause on, you know, buying up uh, an old building in the West End, say, right. Those, those strata windups are way down right now. And, and I just kind of thinking through this problem right now of when you tamper down on demand and actually that speculation is good for creating supply, right. And if you go after speculators, just generally speaking and make that climate uncertain that there's going to be less housing.
4: I think it's uh, complicated, and I think uh, you know it's fun for me to kind of listen to Tom Davidoff as he you know works through some right. of these issues, too. Yeah,
1: he was actually the first one that kind of made him, and uh, we had uh, one other guest that really made the case for speculators right. uh, in the marketplace, but sorry, continue.
4: No, it's okay. I think that uh, certainly um, that kind of speculation, right, um, can be good insofar as speculation is connected up to the ways that developers fund projects and that's how pre-sales work and this is how you know developers are expected to have a certain number of pre-sales in order to get financing more broadly. Right. So it's really important that we get a better grasp on how all this is connected up right. before we jump in and say speculators are the problem, right? Um, at the same time, to the extent that speculators are, for instance, leaving land off the market for a long time, uh, holding on to it and the idea that it'll ramp up in value, uh, there are some practices that speculators um, uh, engage in, uh, leaving homes again empty more broadly, right? That uh, are quite negative Mm -hmm. for, as well, bringing supply onto the market, right? Sure. So in that sense, um, and I think this is part of why we wrote this article, to be honest, I think that really engaging with policy means really starting to get a better grasp on all these details and how they fit together, and this is, again, where I think, like, just throwing them all into the, into the swamp, per se, right, and saying, oh, speculation is just contributing to the swamp of, of terrible things that are going on, not so useful, right? right. It's, it's useful to really pull it apart and say, okay, how can we craft policy that makes sure that speculation does what we want it to do? and doesn't contribute to the things we don't. Right. And that's where for me again I mean I think the empty homes tax is another one that I'm like yeah that's that 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 actually makes sense to me mm-hmm. right as as a policy to actually pursue.
1: Right. Yeah, I, and just thinking this through there's certain areas of Burnaby especially that I think you know there's thousands upon thousands of units under construction right now and I don't have the numbers this is just you know working in the industry but there's a lot of investors who have bought there, and you know some of them potentially are going to get caught, um, but nonetheless, there's going to be thousands upon thousands of units in in Burnaby, right? So, anyway, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's get back to uh, fact checking Vancouver swamp drainers here. I what I was thinking would be useful, and it's the way that you guys kind of framed your your blog post or your article, I should say, um, is basically take sort of certain claims. Terry Glavin made and kind of unpack them. And I don't know if you have it in front of you or you could speak to it. You probably uh, have sharper minds than myself. I wouldn't be able to do this. But if I just read these sentences and you guys unpack where, <laughs> where they went wrong. So the first, at least 20,000 Vancouver homes are empty and nobody's really sure who owns them. Why is that statement problematic?
3: Well, um, let's start with a good thing. Um, It's actually um, better than uh, many I've seen. (laughs) So um, in in Vancouver, we've had long discussions about empty homes. And um, one thing I think that's important is to distinguish why homes are empty. So there's good empty, there's bad empty. Good empty, for example, is a rental unit looking for a renter. We uh, we always complain our rental vacancy rate rate is too low. We want that number to be higher. So um, a yeah, property for sale is, is quite good too. And uh, we know if we look at say MLS data and we look at is it occupied or not. Um, you know there's a good portion about 25% of them are are vacant of the. If you look just at the sales, I don't know if they list longer or not. So there might be a bias in there. But um, so there we have. Um, property that's on the market looking for a buyer, that's good. We want more of those um, to, um, you know, put some downward pressure on on prices. Um, If that market is tight, that's not good. So so there we could use a little more, Um, and some of those will be empty, and I think that's just fine. Um, The other part is, of course, we have moving vacancies. Um, We don't have the situation where we kind of line up the moving trucks and meet in the middle as people move houses. We need a certain amount of empty homes just so that we can move efficiently. Um, just like the unemployment rate will never be zero, or the job vacancy rate, because people need to move jobs. That's, um, so there's a natural vacancy rate there that we want, that we would have. Um, especially when we build a lot of new product, it takes some time to fill in. Like a project that um, just gets built, it won't fill up immediately. It takes maybe half a year, sometimes two years, till we get to a sort of a fairly good occupancy rate. So when we talk about these numbers, um, and the 20,000 or 25,000 that we sometimes hear they come from the census, um, we really need to try to understand, well, okay, this is what the census reports, but how many of these are problematic vacancies, problematic empty homes? And um, one thing that when these numbers get thrown around, people do not do that work to try to figure out actually how many of these empty units are problematic that we might want to target. So we have other measures for those, actually. The Ecotages report is probably the best one. That was where the City of Vancouver contracted out um, a report using BC Hydro, so electricity usage data, to figure out how many homes are vacant or problematic. And the Empty Homes Tax now is trying to target these, and um, so we got some numbers from that too, although um, those probably also contain some avoidance and some other issues. So, but I think the ecotagious numbers is a, is a good starting point for that discussion and when you write something an article where you try to make a claim that something is problematic and you use those 20,000 or 25,000 numbers that that really is, um, really is a problem I think you should be focusing on problematic vacancies you create an idea here an illusion that there's a lot more the problem is a lot bigger than it really is and um, and that's something that I would hope that the media could pay a little more attention to. Is there?
1: And sorry, in that you you were saying earlier that number of problematic empty homes is is probably closer to. Do you have a number on that?
3: Yeah. So the Ecotagia study got somewhere ten, or maybe thirteen thousand units, depending on what the measure is. Um, and probably since the introduction of the empty homes tax I think there's been some at least anecdotal evidence that some of those units have um, entered the market again in response to that Um, you know the best way to avoid that tax is to simply rent out your home or sell it and uh, that has been happening how much we don't really know we'll have to wait for the follow-up study but as a starting point I think that's a number that we can start to talk about right and
4: well, I was just going to say too, right? So that effectively, that twenty to twenty-five thousand is about two to three times higher than it should be if we're focusing on those uh, uh, those those other sort of more accurate versions of empty homes,
3: right? right. And the other notion not tacked on that you know we don't know who lives in them, it's kind of like uh, a weird throwaway line um, or who owns them. Um, yeah, I mean, land title records, of course, do know roughly which homes people own. There is a small portion of homes that are um, in some kind of um, opaque ownership agreement which the NDP is um, working on changing which um, I think is great because um, that level type of transparency where housing is so important I think is really needed. And um, but um, it's not like there's some kind of evil force that keeps the city from saying who owns these homes from that study. There's some privacy laws where um, the, the data that was given out by BC Hydro um, was very clear that that could not be used for enforcement of empty homes or identifying um, individual homes, but had had to be aggregated to some level.
1: Right. So so the first claim being that uh, there's at least 20,000 homes empty the second claim that Terry Gavin makes is another 25,000 residents are occupied by homeowners whose declared taxable household income is mysteriously lower than the amount they're shelling out in property taxes, utilities, and mortgage
3: payments. True or false? <laughs> well, I mean, he's off by roughly factor three there. Um, and on top of that, it really is important to actually look at who these kind of households are. So these are census numbers, and um, census numbers about people that live somewhere. So it's not, you know, we don't know anything about the empty homes from the census numbers because there's no census questionnaire these people filled out. But for those, we actually do know a lot of stuff. Right. So we can, um, in, you know, query the data and try to figure out um, who these people are And um, what these living situations are and and what that means and um, I do believe that there is some you know, once we drill down enough into it, there's some problematic um, issues that maybe can be found there, but uh, nowhere near the scale that this suggests so first of all, there's only about um, um, 8,900 homeowner households not over 25,000 so this is, um, I think it's a lot of this in the media seems to be sort of this game of silent post where um, one reporter wrote an article on something and probably actually looked at the actual numbers. And so I believe this stems from a piece by Ian Young um, based on 2011 numbers um, that I th- um was actually came from me originally. <laughs> so I feel a little bit responsible for this. And um, so where he actually, you know, and he did this piece with me and I walked him through this and he looked up the census numbers and, you know, there was like I had to just like show him exactly where the numbers are. And you know, he, he went through this in quite uh, detail yeah. to, to fact check these things and understood those numbers and wrote this article. And it was just about all homeowners. We talked about this. We talked about students and other things. But at the time, I didn't really spend all that time to look in detail of who these people are. But then this number was taken. It's still 2011 numbers. The new numbers came out. They were lower in 2016, and nobody picked up on those. Um, it's just not a news story that sells. Yeah. And then it was recycled as homeowners, at some point down the line, I mean, lots of people picked up in young stuff. So um, I don't know what the lineage of the silent post is here. And then we ended up with the homeowners here, and um, and of course also lacking all context that was originally in the original piece, and that should actually have been elaborated on early on. And and we do in the blog post too to really take it apart of who these people are.
1: So a huge chunk of of this. This number then are not homeowners, they're renters? The majority is
3: renters, yes. So I think the typical, a prototypical example would be a student. right So uh, no income or very little, maybe working a bit of a coffee shop on the side, um, going to say UBC, uh, one of Nathan's students maybe, <laughs> who knows, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, renting out someplace somewhere, uh, maybe with roommates or on their own, and um, they would probably end up in this situation where their shelter cost does exceed all their reported income. And if you look at the data, um, the non-census family households, which is essentially um, people that are not couples or um, lone parents of that sort, they dominate this, um, this category. And um, certainly in the renter households, but um, also in the homeowner household, this is so the we're biggest category. roommates? This could be roommates. This could be just a single person renting their place. Um, and, um, so it's not, it could be either one of those scenarios. Um, and yes, even for homeowners, we always hear stories about somebody buying an apartment for their kid while they go to university. This is definitely something that happens. Um, and, um, so, uh, we also have seniors possibly in this category, right? So, um, that, that live in, in these places, uh, typically, um, good portion of senior income will show up as income, um, some doesn't. So if you cash out of your home, um, the capital gains won't show up in the income. Um, if you take out lump sum payments out of your retirement savings plans, don't don't show up as income. So um, that's another one that uh, can come up here.
4: So, yeah, and I think just to add to this, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, this is some of this probably is stuff that the CRA should pay more attention to, but uh, others is, I mean, People's incomes fluctuate, right? Lone parents, in particular, like you could have just had a divorce and your income's gone down, you're trying to figure out how to pay for things. But, uh, you know, as realtors, you're probably not familiar with how incomes fluctuate. Uh, you probably don't get much that <laughs> No idea. <set. laughs> no idea. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's another uh, untold part of the story that I would actually love to do more research on to just see how much some people's incomes fluctuate yeah. and, and how that contributes to stats like this.
3: But, uh, and, and, of course, we also have um, something that where people that own their own company, like, for example, myself, um, how, do, how do that income show up? Right? Right. So if you pay yourself in terms of dividends and bonuses, Um, That does not show up as regular income, and you will know this as realtors again, because if somebody's trying to qualify, if I were to come to you and try to qualify for a mortgage, it'll be hard because um, I just don't have that type of income. And I know people that for that purpose, for one year, actually pay themselves as income, and then for other years, they don't. And so, um, again, this is another portion off this. Yeah.
4: Versus me as a as a university professor, my income is very
1: boring.
3: It <laughs> just pretty much chugs along. Well
1: yeah, and, and we're
3: incorporated
1: as well. So it's uh qualifying for a mortgage is actually quite difficult for for a lot of realtors as well. Um okay, so next uh next claim non-residents own roughly 45 billion worth of Metro Vancouver's residential properties and non-residents picked up one in five condominiums sold in Metro Vancouver over the past three years true or false
3: now, this one is sort of mostly true I think um, there's some uh, some aggressive rounding going on in those numbers and uh, that needs pointing out um, you know I mean 43 45 you know that's that's all good I don't know why you would round to the nearest five there. But um, you know that's that's just fine. Um, when it comes to the uh, one in five condominiums units sold um, went to you know that non-residents picked those up. Um, there's sort of two things in there. One is a fairly typical uh, mix-up of City of Vancouver and Metro Vancouver. So he probably was trying to refer to City of Vancouver numbers and picked up Metro Vancouver numbers. And the other part is that I suspect I think that table got updated um, with more accurate numbers um, that dropped that number even for City of Vancouver again. So it's sort of some kind of outdated numbers. But overall... um, It's not as off as some of the other ones were. So the actual number is uh, 7.1. So 1 and 7.1, it was said as 1 and 5. If you go up to the um, numbers for just the city of Vancouver, it's 1 and 6.5. You get a little closer. But again, those are updated numbers. You might have been working with old numbers. So it gets more closer to the 5 again. Yeah.
1: One one, or I was just going to say, one thing that struck me about what uh, you folks wrote here was non-residents own roughly forty-five billion worth of Metro Vancouver's residential properties. Now that, of course, strikes everyone as as a massive amount, but in the in the larger scheme of of the value of Metro Vancouver's real estate, it's actually less than five percent.
3: That's correct. Yes. So, I mean, uh, there's there's always this idea of how do you represent the numbers as a percentage. If you say less than five percent, it doesn't sound all yeah, that great. It's not nearly as um, so. There's certain, yeah, there's certain choices in there that um, of how and which numbers get reported. Um, you know, I, I would hope we could see a little bit more balance and uh, diversity of measures in the media on those kind of things. I think that would really help to spread things a bit. But yes, I mean, in terms of the actual data accuracy, it is accurate
4: yeah but that's I think that uh, that difference, right, is sort of present throughout the article, right? that that reporting raw numbers devoid of context instead of percentages and things is one way to ramp up, I think the uh, the concern trolling um, that we see uh, quite commonly right. think, in a lot of the discourse. And I think the other thing that uh, uh, that we actually had to spend a little bit of time figuring out with this particular statement was just what it was he meant by that uh, that second uh, um, part of that statement, sort of one in five condominiums sold in Metro Vancouver over the past three years, when in fact, we just don't, nobody's recording that data, right? So so instead, what we get are, are much more specific uh, uh, kinds of data about... Uh, um, the recent trans, you know, recent transactions. We have some of that data through the
3: uh, um, foreign buyer tax itself, right? So yeah, and- we had quite a discussion of what is actually meant by this, right? And part of the issue there is that um, if you talk about non-residents, picked up one in five. So that looks at transactions. So we don't have data on non-resident transactions. We only have data on non-resident ownerships. Also, we don't have data in the last three years, but we only have. 2006 to the end of 2017, 2016 to the end of 2017. So it's only two years for some period. Um, So the foreign buyers, we do have data, and we can look at foreign buyers, what they did, and the number is lower. So that's not it either. So we actually looked that up. And if you look in the source code of the blog post, it's actually in there, you can Um, you know just as a side note um, for the geeky these are you know the underlying code and everything you can download and rerun it on your computer it pulls in all the data for you and does all the analysis and there's a hidden section in there that also pulls in the foreign bias data if that's what you want So, so that wasn't it either and so there was a You know, in the end, we decided he probably meant this because it sort of matched the numbers in some other articles. The silent post down the line um, were clearer about where they got their data from and what they were actually reporting on.
1: Transparency International reckons about half of Vancouver's west side residences are owned by mystery trusts or shell companies.
4: This was the one that I think (laughs) triggered the end. (laughs)
3: I mean, it's just like, this claim is just so outrageously wrong that (laughs) I don't even know where to start. (laughs) So uh, maybe just to um, do do the quick one on this one. So uh, if I play the game of Silent Post, um, the way this worked is that Transparency International um, pulled the titles of the 100 Most Expensive Properties in Metro Vancouver. And out of those, they looked at the ownership, and I looked at how many were owned by companies and how many owned by trusts. So, of course, not all these company ownerships are actually opaque in any way. Um, often it's just a clear name. And, you know, In some cases it is. In some cases it's a clear name company. It's just a property owned by a company instead of by the individual for various reasons. Um, but it's, it's owned by a company. So you can look up these numbers, and it was like, I want to say, of those were owned either by companies or trusts. And um, now this then morphed into um, almost half of the expensive, most expensive properties, almost half of the high-end properties. Um, High-end, I guess, is like West Side. So now it's almost half of the West Side properties are owned by... um, You know these corporations and trusts, and so we did. um, We don't have title data available on this kind of basis um, to to easily fact check the claim as stated. Uh, What we do know is um, ownership in terms of corporations um, just overall in Metro Vancouver, and um, and those numbers just are nowhere close. So it's it's very clear that the hundred most important uh, most. um, Expensive properties are very different from the general property, even the general West Side property, and um, so so yeah. I mean, I, I don't false. know. <laughs> false. It is. It is just. Yeah, it's outrageously. I mean, it's so obviously false. It's not even. <laughs>
4: yeah so we're talking about for the metro vancouver area right um, rounding up to six percent of properties have uh, have have an estimated sort of some sort of a trust uh, um, structure of ownership or a company
3: i mean of course you know and some of those are just normal like you know if you have a rental building you know clearly it's going to be owned by a company not an individual in general Um, but then again we count properties here not units right so one rental property counts as just one um Although they might have several units, so that 's the basis here, which I think is the right one for this context
1: and and what struck me um apart from all you're saying here is is that Vancouver's not out of the ordinary right not i mean actually, it sounds like the interior has more corporations and trusts that own property
3: than than Metro Vancouver. That's and right. Non-
4: non-metropolitan areas are much higher in terms yeah. of that kind Which of makes, ownership. Yeah, totally yeah. And, and that's
3: also something that you can see in transaction data if you look at it. So, um, you know, it was certainly something that I looked at um, with a foreign buyers tax coming in to see, for example, if there's a ramp up in the, in the city of, in, the, in Metro Vancouver of um, corporate ownership, but no, and it's higher in, in outside Metro Vancouver. So um, there are reasons for this that, I don't know. You might know better as uh, people in the market of why it's higher. I mean, London, Ontario is a total outlier, which is really quite interesting. Yeah, that was Uh, kind of
1: striking. I have no idea. (laughs) But
4: it's a a really kind of neat and interesting comparison, too, because, I mean, yeah, I think if Vancouver looked like London, people would be like unjustifiably concerned, right? Like, what is going on here? But we don't. And uh, uh, we look really normal. So, uh, so from that perspective, I think that it's, you know, coming back to what the NDP is doing, I think it's great that they're providing transparency to these kind of structures. That's a good move. But I don't expect that to really change our underlying dynamics right. um, as a market.
1: Just as an aside on that, and if, if we all take the underlying assumption that transparency is good, does it not strike you, based on what we just said, as kind of a misplaced to be going after the trusts and corporations to get that transparency at this moment when it seems to policy actually seems to kind of uh jive with say this claim that that a lot of the property in Metro Vancouver is owned by trusts or corporations and there's kind of secret and nefarious owners and everything else. I mean it seems like the policies following this logic the ends probably good but it seems like there's there's a the or the overarching kind of message is one with Terry Glavin. You know,
4: I I think
1: from my perspective transparency is good, right? So it's yeah.
4: a good thing to get in the market. I the other thing sure. while I don't think this is contributing to say unaffordability in Vancouver's market the way people think it is I do think that lack of transparency is contributing to a crisis of legitimacy in Vancouver's market, right? Fair point. So, so I think from that perspective, yeah, this is the right move, right? Um, make it more transparent. Get rid of those questions of the, of the legitimacy of, of the market. Um, and, then, and, and that's going to contribute to, I think, a better footing for doing what I think we really do need to do to increase affordability.
1: Vancouver has also become a major global hub for organized crime networks based in China true or false uh, you know I mean I think that this is where uh,
4: I guess you know I I, I took issue with uh, wrapping all these things together right um, on the one hand it's not bad to sort of have a holistic perspective of how things fit but when you do it wrong when you put them together wrong you, you come to the wrong conclusions I think um, I think the opioid epidemic is a real serious issue. It's a major issue. Absolutely. We need to be doing more to deal with it. But, but what does that doing more to deal with it look like? I don't think it really involves much in terms of cracking down on Chinese gangs or something, right, in, in terms of uh, of what's going on. I think most of what needs to be done there um, is about reconfiguring how our systems of pain management work, reconfiguring how our uh, system of uh, uh, making drugs illegal works, um, and then figuring out, like, how do we solve this broader crisis that uh, that we see, which, which certainly, you know, Vancouver is a, a place where we've seen a lot of deaths and we need to deal with this, but it's definitely not the only place, right? You know, do we my mom lives in West Virginia, and man, Ooh. West Virginia has been hit, right? And I don't think that's about Chinese gangs. No. Um, so, I mean, that's just an example of, like, we're we're imagining that this can be focused in on a particular Vancouver uh, global uh, crime network. It's just going to lead us really in the wrong direction to figuring out what's going on here. Similarly, with the money laundering, again, it's a real issue, needs to be dealt with, uh, has real victims, um, uh, but the amount of money from that so far that we have seen that could have affected the real estate is uh, for better or worse it's small change it's it's not really something that that we can imagine if you're even remotely mathematically competent you don't even have to be at Jens's level of mathematical competence <laughs> um to see that that is going to have this huge effect on our real estate market so far, and we may get more results, which is fine, right? You know, it's great to actually the, to get more reporting on this. Maybe it will change our minds in the long run that we've seen more uh, money laundering through our real estate sector than, than would be apparent through the casinos, for instance. Um, it would be great to crack down on that again. I mean, the realtors want to operate in a transparent environment where this isn't happening, Right. And everybody else obviously wants that too. So, so it's good to crack down on this. But to tie it all together and say this is the source of our affordability crisis, I'm not seeing it yet.
1: Yeah, and and just to break down those numbers. So there's they've it's a hundred million. We were talking about this before we went live. A hundred million over ten years.
3: So that was the number that was um, you know as an estimate in the in the German report, right? Yeah. So that's ten million dollars a year. Right, which, you know, we're in Metro Vancouver. So Metro Vancouver, you know, we have to be a bit careful of how we assemble the numbers. A lot of people like to go to the Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board, which, of course, misses 30% of Metro Vancouver um, and 40% of the growth in Metro Vancouver. So um, probably more than 30% of the transactions there. um, um, And also includes like Sunshine Coast, Whistler, Pemberton. Um, but if we actually look at Metro Vancouver, yeah, we are looking at what somewhere between forty and fifty billion a year. Um, so yeah, that ten is not. So, the, so
1: the link between uh, prices escalating the way they have over the last four or five years and and the money laundering is probably tangential. Well, of those. the
3: of the amounts that we've seen so far, there, you know, I think it's it's non-existent.
4: But it does remind me, which is kind of fun, right? I've been here long enough now. But I remember when, you know, these, uh, the, the, the explanation for all the real estate was, was uh, pot and uh, grow-ups. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. I remember this trope <laughs> that this is, this is what can explain everything. And, uh, um, yeah, I think that ultimately we're going to come back and say, yeah, that wasn't it, uh, just like we did eventually with, with grow-ups.
1: Right. The last claim, which is kind of a a more larger point about Vancouver, is uh, Glavin says, uh, and he's quoting somebody else, Freeland to be exact, Freeland could have been describing Vancouver, median wages have been stagnating, jobs are becoming more precarious, pensions uncertain, housing, childcare, and education harder to afford. You guys take issues with that claim as well.
3: Well I've been watching um, the incomes claim for quite a while so this idea of stagnant incomes in Vancouver um, seems very sticky uh, it just gets recycled a lot and I just um, I, you know, the data just tells a very different story so um, I've been fascinated by how uh, Vancouver um, has been overtaking Toronto in terms of incomes and um, so so and and the growth has really been quite Quite strong. Um, if you're looking at uh, family income, for example, has grown pretty much in lockstep with rents overall. And um, so it, it's some part of the story that is always getting misrepresented. So Vancouver does have low incomes than some other um, areas. So we've just basically caught up with Toronto now. Mm-hmm. Um, Calgary is a lot higher. I mean, if you go to Fort McMurray, it gets even higher than that. Um, there's, you know, certain areas um, do have higher incomes. Um, also, if we look in terms of employment, a, a lot of the job growth has been stronger in, in the full-time employment um, than in part-time. Um, we have um, had a f- um, rising participation rate in, in the region, and um, uh, unemployment rate is, is very low. Job vacancy rate is very high, so um, it's hard for people to actually fill those, those vacant jobs. Um, partially, again, because it's very expensive to move here and because simply we don't have um, the, the supply that's there to actually move in. Right? So um, basically in, this, in an environment like Metro Vancouver, um, supply is a hard cap on population growth. We have, um, if you look at Metro Vancouver projections, which is kind of fun. So Metro Vancouver is trying to understand how does the region grow, and so in 2011 they updated their projections to look at what in 2021 the population should look like, and you can kind of take 2016 data as a halfway point to see what's going on there, and we've completely overshot the employment goals, but undershot the dwelling count and undershot, of course, population growth in a proportional amount. Right. It's just not quite there. So, um, so we'll see. We have a lot of um, supply coming at market. You talked about this earlier in Burnaby, for example, a lot yeah. of stuff under construction. So, um, in the short term, that might be interesting. In the medium to long term, looking at this data, I'm not seeing that as a huge issue.
1: So, th- those are the the main claims here. I'm just thinking in in as a final kind of th- question here. I- in some what is in your, in your mind the larger problem with kind of articles like these and, the, and there's a lot of them and and why do you think these inaccuracies are so prevalent?
3: I think on a good on, on some level, everybody's hurting or a lot of people are hurting in Vancouver um, when it comes to real estate. and um, so people do want answers. And so there's a lot of things that seem to make sense on that intuitive level, and the numbers get interpreted and reinterpreted in a way that does make sense to people. So I think that's a, that's a good part of this. So uh, you know, another example is nobody talks about how the share of the population that pays more than 30% of their income on housing, how that has dropped in Vancouver. It's just something that seems so counterintuitive – and um, that people just don't know how to, how to talk about this. It doesn't work in the narrative. Well, it's just also, I think it's just a difficult thing to talk about. When I first saw this, I thought, wow, this doesn't make any sense. I double-checked the numbers. Because with the lived experience, we know things have gotten more expensive. We know rents have gone up. Okay, incomes have gone up too. But it, it's something that we struggle with. right? What does that mean? How does that fit into all these other things? And whereas some of the other numbers, they're just simpler. You know, I don't think they are any more right or wrong in that sense, but it's just easier to write about.
4: And some of what we, you know, we track income pretty well, right? We have good statistics on that. We're terrible at tracking wealth. So we have some data on wealth, right? But we don't have good data on wealth. And um, so I think that's another side of the problem, right? And I think a lot of what we're seeing is that, yeah, wealthier people are moving in, less wealthy people moving out, right? And so there are things that we're not able to track well that may explain a lot of this Um, but, uh, but because we don't track it, we don't see it. And so that does make it trickier than do to work with the statistics that we can get and figure out exactly what's going on. Right.
1: Well, maybe that's a good place to leave it. Uh, we'll obviously link to your article, but, uh, how can people find out more about what you do, Jens?
3: Well, um, I think for sort of my public facing um, work on <laughs> my thoughts about real estate and other issues, sometimes quite random, uh, my blog's a good, poise,
1: a good well, we've place. Al- we've already pumped your Halloween uh, track oh, yeah <laughs> the Halloween Halloween map. tracker map from a couple of years back but um, yeah, so in your blogs at mountainmath. Do- doodles.mountainmath.ca, yes. Perfect and you, Nathan. Uh, you can track my blog at uh, Home
4: Free Sociology at, at WordPress. You can just plug it into a Google and it'll find Home Free Sociology. I'm the only one using that weird moniker. But uh, one other uh, plug for Jens's blog, which I think is just worth noting, and I'm working, aspiring to get there, is that Jens has everything in, incredibly transparent about all of his analyses and everything, right? So that's, a, that's an awesome kind of thing to contribute. And I've already seen lots of people who are familiar with statistics be like holy cow everything's here it's uh, it's uh, yeah this is this is what a godsend so for those of us like me who are a little bit more old school and often work in excel and other kinds of uh, old programs and don't necessarily make our data public i think that's a wonderful thing to start to do to move towards making the data that you're working with public making exactly where you got it from public and then the analysis ultimately public so that other people can play with that and move towards uh, um, that, that full transparency that we really want to see with our contributions to a public discourse.
3: Yeah. And maybe to add to that too, and looping back to the very beginning, um, where we talked about maybe just a lack of depth in the analysis. So, um, you know, I kind of do this on the side at times, but um, this enabled somebody else to pick up on what I did and piggy bank of all that. Nothing needs to be redone if they just look at something and say, wow, what happens if I correct that by inflation? What happens if I uh, mix that with something else? So it's a fairly easy add-on. And then I can come around saying, wow, well, this is really cool. What happens if I take that and move somewhere else? So I'm hoping that this can also uh, lead to a more collaborative approach and trying to understand some of those numbers and um, other people picking up on, on this.
1: Right. Standing on the shoulders of giants, and uh, as the last thing, or just
3: ten (laughs) ten dwarfs on top of each other—that works too. (laughs) I
4: I like standing on the shoulders of (laughs) gens.
1: And definitely watch for Nathan's book. Uh, It's available in all fine bookstores, all fine ones. All right, (laughs) take care. Thanks so much for your time, guys. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Jens von Bergman and Nathan Lauster.
2: Matt, to be clear, it was your discussion. That's right.
1: Yeah, I was. I was interested in talking to these guys. You were too. You weren't available. I was. Yeah, I had a I had a, a deficiency walkthrough. That's right. And you can't reschedule those. That's, no, you cannot. that's something that is notoriously difficult to Set reschedule. In stone. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was out there, and uh, no, it's always good talking to these guys. They think a lot about housing, and. Um, you know, it's really grounded in in the numbers, which is really nice. So um yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Hopefully everyone at home did too.
2: Biggest takeaway?
1: You know what, I I, I not so much of a, a takeaway uh as, as much of kind of a comment on the discourse. It seems insane when a guy like Jens von Bergman can be attacked on uh, Twitter as as kind of a you know on on one extreme side of the of the debate when like an industry yeah supporter like an industry or supporter or something like that yeah. Or, or yeah because he's just so clearly a guy that just thinks a lot about cities and, and very members, thought both right? of them very thoughtful very guys. thoughtful people. So So yeah, it was a fantastic conversation anyway, what else do we got? We got vancouver real com. Yes, Matt. we have Vancouver real
2: com, where you can find services like private client services. That's right. What is private client services? Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices. You get days on market. It's basically realtor-level information, and it's updated 36 to 72 hours before public
1: MLS. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If you're not using PCS, you're doing it wrong. You are doing it wrong. We also have that mobile app.
2: Yeah, Matt. Matt. Picture this, you're standing outside Scotiabank Theatre, you are waiting to go to the latest screening of Crazy
1: Rich Asians. Right, I'm super keen on that one. You are very keen on it.
2: So you look up, you see a beautiful building, Electric Avenue. Oh, right on top of Scotiabank Theatre. Yeah, right on top. And you go, you know what, I want to live above Scotiabank Theatre. And there's Boza built Is it
1: Earls, built there. it. That's a, Earls, Boza built. That's a great building.
2: Fantastic building, Matt. You're preaching to the choir, you point your cell phone, and boom, three listings. Yeah. Next thing you know... You're living above Scotia theater. <laughs> it sounds better. It's 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 it's, uh, it's better than it sounds. There's good soundproofing. Yeah.
1: Uh, so what else do we got, Matt? We got the deal of the month. There are some deals out there. We're in August. Tons of deals. I got a laundry list of deals for the deal of the month coming up. Oh,
2: we might even have a pocket listing deal coming up for the deal of the month. So uh, stay tuned for that. Wait a second, pocket listing. For those of you who don't know, that's a listing that is
1: not on MLS. You're not going to find it anywhere except for that uh, deal of the month club. That's right. So you better get over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and sign up today. We are now at 173 reviews overwhelming on on
2: itunes it is it is definitely we really appreciate the support if you haven't given our podcast a review and you like what you hear please head over to itunes give us a review or wherever you listen to this podcast and like we always say if you do like the show and you're learning something please share it with a friend or somebody in your family or a group of friends that might benefit from it or get in touch how can they get in touch
1: you can call me at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at com And you, Adam? Or you can try me at
2: 778-866-4574 or adam at com.
1: We also have that nonpartisan line, info at com.
2: Matt, we have tons of amazing guests coming up and uh, yeah, this is going to be a hey, great- Hey, we re- we're got we
1: building tools. We got new guests. It's it's exciting times for the Exciting for the times. Absolutely. For the V Rep?
2: For the V Repers. V Rep community. Yeah, the V Rep community. All yeah. right. Anyways, have a good week. Take care.
3: 2,000 Faces for Radio. Subscribe today.